Michelle. And I'm Lucy. Welcome to our extremely inappropriate Valentine's Day special. <laughs> yes, not for children. <laughs> <laughs> It's not the most romantic Valentine's Day special, but I wrote this thing nearly a year ago and we still haven't got round to recording it. So <laughs> we haven't got anything better. So here we go. Here we so go. That's, uh, that's a nice bit of sell for you. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to Valentine's Day up the Tudor era when most of the marriages were contracted. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not a lot of romance. No. Unless it's with your mistress, which I don't think yes. you want to put out. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Definitely not child. Or you get married in secret and end up being plonked in prison or yes. um, or a nunnery by the king. Yes. <laughs> Whoops. Anyway, we've got more patrons to thank. Mm. Sherry Dominic, Cecil Williams, Maria Voronia and Sarah Campbell. Ooh. So thank you very thank much. You. To, thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's super helpful. Mm. Really appreciate that. I am sorry that your thank you is going out on a sex cast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it, shall we? <laughs> I thought this would be our episode, our one and only episode about sex with all its many ramifications. Okay. Little did I know what a mountain of research there has been on this subject. Really? Yeah. Why? In the end, I have honed this episode down to how the church monitored sex before the Reformation. So it's quite specific. Well, that sort of makes sense because they didn't they didn't register marriages in churches yet. That wasn't really a thing. It mm. was beginning, but it wasn't completed. No. No. Well, I have a lot of books on the subject of Tudor sex now. <laughs> So that, A, I look like a complete pervert, <laughs> and B, there's fodder for plenty more episodes on the subject. Okay. So you've got got a lot more Valentine's Day specials to look forward to. <laughs> Welcome to another inappropriate Valentine's yes. Day special. Perfect. <laughs> but I have been thought that before the Reformation, the church kept their noses out of people's bedrooms. But that wasn't the case. And a lot of the problem was that much of the research focused on after the Reformation rather than the period before. So the lack of evidence for the earlier regulation became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Ah. We haven't found the evidence because we haven't really looked. So it doesn't exist. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Also, there was the deliberate destruction in Protestant times of pre-Reformation church records. Yeah, right. I wish they wouldn't do that. It's so yeah. selfish, isn't it? Yeah. They didn't think about us, did Just they? lock it away. We can use it mm. later. When Henry VII was on the throne, the courts were already policing a wide range of sexual transgressions on the basis of, quote, reformation of manners, unquote. And that's manners oh. meaning morals, morals in this case. Yes. Mm. And that wasn't just sexual. It included gambling, which is ironic considering what his mother was up to. <laughs> <laughs> when she should be going on pilgrimage. <laughs> yes. Usury, drunkenness, which is ironic considering what his yes. mother was up to. Oh, we should say that usury is uh, lending of money. Lending money, yeah. yeah vagabondage, we can't blame Margaret for vagabondage, and breaking the sumptuary laws. And well, I don't suppose she did that either. Oh, I don't think so. Unless you say you can't wear this because you were never queen, then she'd be breaking mm. the sumptuary laws. But who's going to tell her that? <laughs> yes, good luck. Yeah. And anyway, this was mainly targeting labourers, apprentices and servants and was more to do with protecting the rich from the poor. Of course. Mm. By the late 15th century, spiritual courts had become just as complex as royal courts and a large part of their business was on marriage and sexual transgression. Within the church itself? Or other people? Other people mainly, <laughs> but, but including the church yes. itself, as we'll see later. Yeah. At this time, the boundaries between state and ecclesiastical courts could be quite blurred, especially in the area of sexual behaviour outside marriage. And it was Henry VIII who set up a commission to mark the boundaries between the two courts following a case we've heard about. And that's the one Richard Hunn, the man oh. found hanging in his cell yes. in our Halloween episode. Yeah. 
and they wanted him to do something to sort out the, the courts. And he said, OK, I'll set up a commission to decide something vague. Yeah. <laughs> and, and get out of it, really, as people often do. It's funny, Henry was such a prude, Henry VIII. Mm. For a man who went through so many wives, he was a prude. He really was. Well, I think he was searching for, for true love, wasn't he, all the time? Didn't stop him from having mistresses. Oh, no. No. No, that should have listened to his dear old dad, shouldn't he? Yep. Apart from in noble families, where we've heard depressingly often about child marriages, most people married in their mid to late 20s. And the number of people who never married was relatively small at this time, but the number grew over the 16th century. Really? Servants were discouraged from marrying. Apprentices were forbidden from doing so until their apprenticeship was over. Also, it was encouraged that young people planning to marry should have a place of their own, which meant saving up, which sounds like a very modern problem, really, doesn't it? Yeah. You have to have enough money. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck with the in-laws. Mm-hmm. And that did mean that there was a lot of young single people knocking around with the inevitable consequences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At this time, sexual relations between couples who were intending to marry was more acceptable than it later came to be. And okay. the church tended to turn a blind eye to it. And maybe they had to, given that uh, Prince Arthur was born a month before his expected time, wasn't he? Ooh. The people the courts homed in on were householders, and several crimes could be committed by householders. Sex with a maidservant, presumably, although not necessarily, meaning rape. Adultery and allowing illicit sex to take place on their premises. Oh, yeah. And also, and this is a bit grim, harbouring unmarried pregnant women in their homes. That was a... That was a... A crime. A crime. Wow. So if you wanted to help out some poor woman who found herself in this very distressing situation, the householder was committing a crime. Where were they supposed to go? The parish did help out some women if they felt that they were in their situation through no fault of their own, if they'd been promised a marriage that never happened or something like that, then they What about all of the lords who were using their well, female servants and then kicking them out when they found they were pregnant? Where did they go? Brothels, mainly, I think. Oh, goodness. Mm. What I couldn't find out is if this was still the case if the woman was part of the family. And I really hope not. I really hope that it wasn't enshrined in law that parents had to turf out a daughter who found herself in trouble. I hope not. But we do know of stories of so many men, fathers doing that. Yeah, people might have done so off their own volition. But yeah. I'd like to think they weren't obliged to by law. Yeah. But I couldn't find out. The reverse side of this was a householder was relied on to teach his family, which included the servants, religion and morality. Quote, for the Commonwealth doth depend on the good government of the householder, unquote. The household was seen as a microcosm of the town and ultimately the state. If the household was orderly, the world was orderly. And if the household was disorderly, the world then was everything fell to pieces. Right. Yeah, we have to remember that this is a time where if you offended God, something went bad for the whole country. Mm. Not just you. Mm. Even though sexual promiscuity was said in medical books of the time to be to do with the balance of the humours, or imbalance, rarely, if ever, was that brought up in court as an excuse. Really? Nobody said, it's not my fault, my lad, it was me black bile. Oh, I wish somebody had so we could see how they really felt about the four humours. <laughs> that would be definitive. Yes. <laughs> yes. That doesn't matter. Ah, it doesn't, does it? <laughs> But also laws, even at this time, were made to curb male excesses, even though, as we heard in the Malleus Maleficarum episode, it was said to be women who had no control over their carnal passions. Yes, yes. And that was due to a generally weak, cold clamminess of the mind that leads to woolly thinking and inability to rationalise morally. Hmm. And in fact, it was said in some church courts that men were more guilty because they did have the ability to reason. Ah. Women couldn't help it. Ah. Mm. It all makes sense, doesn't it, when it's spelt out? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Same-sex relationships. We can pretty much dismiss same-sex relationships between women since they barely appeared in English court records. 
and we know very little about it. And maybe it was like Queen Victoria. They just didn't believe it was happening. Mm. But it must have been. It must have been. Mm. Sodomy crops up in the records, though, and that's not just male-male. It can be male-female, male-goat, whatever. <laughs> yes. yes. It just means sex, sex done in such a way that procreation is not possible. Yes, it doesn't particularly mean backdoor sex. I'm, I'm trying to keep this somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it somewhat, and you come out with a phrase like backdoor sex. Well, I don't know. <laughs> that's the nicest way I can put it. Mm. Yeah, it could be, I don't know, what would you call it? The rhythm method, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. Oral sex. Gosh, I haven't heard that phrase in many, many years. <laughs> <laughs> the Council of Florence, as we saw in Leonardo's episode on Patreon. Tudoriferous Patreon shouldn't be allowed. actually opened state-run brothels in an attempt to curb homosexuality. Well, in Bishop Fox's episode, we were talking about the Winchester swans or geese. Geese. Geese, yeah. Yeah, because that's why you get goose pimples when yeah. you've been rather too often with the, with the Winchester geese. Yes. And we got a whole episode on getting goose pimples. They're usually known as syphilis. <laughs> Between 1432 and 1503, the Office of the Night, which was the Florentine Vice Squad, investigated 17,000 men in a city of 40,000. Wow. Including Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, that is over 70 years, so I mean, they're obviously different oh, men. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> it's still cow. quite a... They're all doing that. <laughs> but yes, if it's a thing of 40,000 40, people, you've got nearly half of them. <laughs> half of them would be men anyway. <laughs> But no, it's over 70 years, so... But it's still quite a hefty chunk. Yes, it is. And in Bruges, between 1385 and 1515, there were around 100 convictions for sodomy, leading to 90 executions. Executions? Mm. <gasps> yes, it's like being in Uganda today. Oh, my God. Yet in England, there is very little evidence in the court records. Is that because they were destroyed or because... Well, it's, it's impossible to know with yeah. records, isn't it? Yeah. What evidence there is usually comes from monasteries, strangely enough. <laughs> there is the odd reference. In 1492, a fellow of Merton College, Oxford, was expelled when he was accused of abusing several students. And it was apparently hushed up, so no change there. Yeah. But we, just, we still know about it 500 years later. So much for hushing. <laughs> that was specifically abuse. We don't hear much about loving long-term same-sex relationships ah. if they ended up in court. And slander was commonly brought to court, but where we have plenty, that's thousands, of examples of people called, being called whore or whoremaster, mm. accusations of homosexuality are incredibly rare. Really? I wonder why that is. Yeah, because, I mean, certainly... At school in the 70s, going, going, you're gay, was considered sort of the ultimate yeah. abuse. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully now it's not the case, but, um, and not the case in Tudor times. Yeah, I'm just finding that such a surprise. Yes, I did. What went on within marriage, although wrapped around with moral instruction, wasn't a matter for the law. Okay. We looked at the, all those days when you weren't meant to have sex, Lent, Advent, Holy Days, Sundays, Wednesdays, the list went on and on and on. Mm. And also you, you were meant to leave it a few days after marriage since it just seemed not on to take the Holy Sacrament and then jump into bed. Except if you were royal, whereas everybody, in some cases, watched you go to bed. <laughs> yes, yes. Get it on, nephew. Who was that? That was King Charles I with William of Orange? Where he said, oh, "What did he say?" Something like, uh, "And now, nephew, on to your duty," and yeah, was encouraging was... them outside the door. Ooh, yeah. Well, I was thinking of Philip the Fair and Juana, who apparently couldn't wait. I remember Lucy Worsley talking about it. It's Charles the Second, not Charles the First. 
Yeah, that sounds fun. All that sort of thing that Charles II would do to virtually everybody, not just his nephew, I should think. Yeah. And King Charles actually closed the curtains himself, apparently, on the couple once they were in bed and then said something along the lines of, now, nephew, on to your duty. Like encouraging him to get her pregnant. We'll put it that way. Mm. Okay. Mm. Well, that is what she's there for. Yes, unfortunately, that is what she's there for. (laughs) But this was just the church interfering. They weren't laws. If you had sex on a Wednesday, you couldn't be arrested for it. You might get a visit from the priest, and then you'd think, well, why does the priest know we'd had sex on a Wednesday? What's he been up to? Laws were kept for adultery and fornication outside marriage. Could a marriage contract alone be the basis for a permanent relationship? Many people, particularly poorer people who couldn't afford a proper church service and the celebratory breakfast, assumed it was. Mm -hmm. And we're not absolutely certain what the common consensus was towards the end of the Middle Ages, but the clergy surely can't have condoned it. No, but what choice did they have? It was happening quite often in pubs. Mm. Even... What was it? Oh, it was, um, we'll get to it in Henry VIII's episode, but Catherine? The Duke of Norfolk's niece. Howard. Yeah, Catherine Howard. She and her first lover had been referring to each other as husband and wife, and that was considered a legal marriage. Mm. That was part of her... Downfall. Downfall. Hmm was that she was now being bigamous. Yeah. Yeah, well, by Henry VII's time, a belief that the church service was unnecessary for marriage was seen as a sign of lollardy, so extra dangerous. Right. And if the couple had had sex, and particularly if the woman were pregnant, that would complicate matters. The law stated that sex made even a conditional agreement binding. So you really had to think carefully about whether you really wanted to or not. By 1500, couples who delayed the solemnisation of their marriage were routinely prosecuted. It was no excuse to say, we plan to, we just haven't got around to it yet. Wow. This surprised me. Regardless of the ages of the couple, a binding union could be entered into without the consent of the parents. Really? Yeah, and this wasn't very popular with parents who were no. constantly worried that their child would do a Edward the Fourth. Yeah, twice. <laughs> if if you believe his brothers, twice. Hmm. Eleanor Butler. Yeah. Well, one particular brother. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, Richard did both. Clarence did both, and then. Clarence said that his mother had had an affair and that Edward oh, was... Oh, yeah, they were awful to their mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Richard just went with he had been pre-contracted to Eleanor Butler, so he wasn't married to Elizabeth Woodville. Mm. Yeah. Well, these marriages of the young people against their parents' consent would often be clandestine. So nobody would know about it, so the parents would then often lean on their child to persuade them, shall we say, to give up their spouse. That it never happened. Mm. And some parents would quickly marry them off to someone else, someone more appropriate. And often, I suppose, like that, it would come back and bite them later. Yes. Somebody said, well, I thought we were married. And there was a difference between urban and rural marriages. Urban women had more freedom to choose, whereas the rural ones were more under their parents' thumb. I mean, that's obviously a generalisation, but in villages... Are we, when you say urban marriages, are we talking about merchants then? Just general people living in towns. Oh, really? I think it's always been that countryside is more conservative than the town, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose And always so. has been. And still is. Sadly, the best source of information for marital law in the church courts are the suits over disputed matrimonial contracts. And a lot depended on whether the verbal contract was made in the present tense or in the future. Because present tense contracts often found their way into the court, but future tense ones were harder to uphold. Right. So if somebody said, I will marry you. Yes. When? Is this binding contract? Well, after. After. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was much harder to to get past the judge. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But if he said, well, I consider us married, then that was a bit different. Reasons for going to court. Well, one party claimed that there was a contract and the other denied it. And sometimes the judge would leave it to their conscience and tell them that they are man and wife in the eyes of God. But if they could live with what they'd done, they were free to marry elsewhere. Really? So it's more a matter of morality than law. Wow. I think the judge is saying, I can't do much about this. Wow. <laughs> but I'd advise you to think carefully. That that really shocks me, actually. Hmm? In the event of there being no evidence, both parties could be punished. If a woman claimed that a man had promised to marry her, and that was the reason she'd had sex with him, and he then denied it, it was a case of his word against hers. And in some cases, the outcome was against the woman in that marriage contract was assumed not to have happened, but then the man would be punished for seducing her. Hmm. So he's either got to decide, well, I've either got to marry her or I'm going to be punished or anyway. I might be clobbered with this, yeah. What kind of punishments? I mean, it could be... Um, Prison, sort of fine. Humiliation yeah. type. Hmm. Having to do something in front of your parish. Be in the stocks. Hmm. <laughs> Some men were accused of selling wives. And that's not in the taking a wife to market, mayor of Casterbridge type way. But if two men had both contracted to marry one woman... One might sell her to the other. What? Well, they could back out in return for money. This could go either way. Either the one who wanted her would offer to buy her, or the one who wanted out would offer to sell her. Oh, my goodness. I wonder how she felt. Yes, I was just thinking of being piggy in the middle of, in that no, situation. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. Slander. Before 1520 when temporal crimes were included in slander cases in the church court, for instance, someone calling someone else a thief, most litigants were men. After that date, temporal crimes were moved to the royal courts, and in the church courts, most accusers and accused were then women, and the defamation was of a more sexual nature. Yes. They, they really were lit litigious. They really liked to take each other to court. Yes, but I suppose they had so little written down oh, true. that there wasn't much choice, was there? As we discovered, if you haven't got deeds to your house, how else are you going to yeah. claim, make a claim on your house? Yep. Sexual slander was often a byproduct of some other argument rather than a serious accusation. So in a land dispute, it might get so heated that the word whore might be bandied about. Mm. But in a time when reputation was everything, a woman couldn't let this pass. No. She had to dispute it. The benchmark as to whether something was defamatory or not was whether the accusation might be believed by, quote, good and grave men, unquote. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's be beautifully vague. So, yes, a very objective measurement. The clergymen were particularly numerous as litigants since they had so much more to lose. Yeah, they would lose their livelihood. Hmm. Ooh. Of the sexual words used in defamation, harlot could be applied to both sexes, and whore could also be used for men. It was usually used against women and meant promiscuous rather than prostitute. Okay. Knave also implied sexual misconduct. So the knave of hearts who stole the tarts oh. was uh, even more naughty than, than we thought. Oh. He wasn't just stealing tarts. But if you really wanted to grind a man's nose into the dust, you accused him of being a cuckold. Right. Which always seems to me extraordinary that Henry VIII agreed to that as being the reason yeah. for ending his marriage to Anne Boleyn. Humiliating to him. Absolutely. And not only just being a cuckold, he was being, being told he was a cuckold By who, her couldn't actually oh. who couldn't actually perform in bed as well. Oh. It's amazing what he allowed to be said in court, I think. Given that he was, his sexual prowess was so important to him. He was such a strange man. Mm. Whittle was even worse than cuckold. And that was a man who was a cuckold and knew it, but preferred to turn a blind eye. So ah. he was a cuckold who was terrified of his wife, in other words, presumably. Ah. There's no female equivalent to the word cuckold, because why would there be? <laughs> 
When a man was called a whore son or a cuckold, it wasn't his sexual misdemeanours that were being targeted, but that of his wife and mother. And mother? Well, if he was a whore son, son of a right. whore. Right, right. Mm. A board was a specific thing. Bawdry was condoning, aiding or abetting sexual transgressions. And this could be running a brothel or it could be allowing an unmarried couple use of a room. And it could, as I said before, even mean taking in an unmarried woman who was, a, who was pregnant. Etymologically, there is some link between the idea of bawdry and boarding, meaning somewhere to stay. Really? Yeah, which puts a different slant on boarding school, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. Church courts in rural society before 1530. That sounds like one of the one of the titles in a sort of 1970s history yes, history does. textbook, doesn't it? <laughs> before before history books became a bit sexy, <laughs> you just get church courts in rural society before 1530. Yes, and you think your heart would sink, and you think, oh god, god. what's this going to be about? <laughs> church courts were known as bawdy courts or bum courts, and I'm not entirely sure why, except that I presume it's because so much of their trade was in Sexual wow. transgression. Previously, bishops and archdeacons would have presided over the court, but by 1500, that role was taken by someone with legal training, so we're seeing the rise of the lawyer. Ah. For better or for worse, when you think about Empson and Dudley and all that oh, lot. yeah. All the official members of the court would have been literate and often well-educated in both canon and civil law. And judges and proctors, the lawyer for the prosecution, so I'm not sure what the lawyer for the defence was called, but they had to be ordained clergy still. Hmm. The purpose of the church court was to instill or enforce Christian morality into a populace, whether they liked it or not. But on the other hand, the court was also fed by the populace because they brought actions against each, each other. other. Yeah. And they had to pay for that honour. Hmm. And as you say, it was a very litigious time. And it was a time when people felt that other people's lives were their business, which I guess comes from living cheek by jowl with your neighbours. Because it really is your business. It was. It was also that fact that if you see somebody doing something immoral, God could punish the whole village or the whole country. Mm. Yeah. And you're doing something immoral by not, not ratting telling somebody. Yep. Visitations that we heard about in Bishop Fox's episode were made not just on naughty nuns, perverted priests and mucky monks, but on the lay community as well. <laughs> oh, we need a sticker with that. <laughs> <laughs> However, before the Reformation, they were not so numerous or so far reaching, except if we heard, as we heard in the Diocese of Winchester. Later, local dignitaries were being required to hunt down transgressors, and amongst these dignitaries were church wardens. And nowadays, church wardens are responsible for making sure the heating in the church works, mm -hmm. or planning a flower-arranging rotor. But in these times we're talking about, he was a warden. He was there to keep an eye on the people of the parish, like a prison warden. Wow. But unlike post-Reformation... Most church wardens, when asked by the bishop for a report in their area of jurisdiction, chose to keep quiet. They didn't want to say that everything was fine and that everyone was behaving themselves in case it came out later that it wasn't and they weren't. But you don't want to accuse somebody, do No, because they're your neighbours. Yeah, they're your neighbours and in some cases <laughs> yes. your family. Yes, you've got to live there. Ooh, what an awkward... I don't want to be a church warden. No, thank you. No, but once the Reformation hit... I think there was more pressure put on them. You know, how come you're telling us that everything's fine? You're the only parish in the area where everything's fine. What's happening? Gosh, that would end up getting people making up stuff too. Yeah. Just to say they're doing their job. Mm. I think when, when we come to the Reformation, we find that things are a lot more unpleasant. Mm-hmm. You would think that the crime of incest would be particularly abhorrent and shocking to people, but that was not necessarily so, since the church had made the spread of potential spouses for which you had to get dispensation for the marriage so wide 
to third cousins and godparents and everything else, that people sometimes found themselves committing incest inadvertently. Probably often in a village. I mean, where are you going to go? Yeah. Got such a small gene pool. Yeah. Actual brother and sister incest doesn't crop up much in the court role. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but relationships between stepfather and stepdaughter are there, but they're still by no means common. And I'm sure that's probably because it was so difficult to hide anything yeah. from your neighbours. Why was the stepdad doing that? Adultery. It was understood that adultery by either men or women was equally reprehensible in the eyes of God. But the courts tended to frown much more on the female adultery because of the added complication of paternity and inheritance. Yes. And who's going to pay for the child? Yeah, that's mm. something. If a woman in a parish had a child without wed out of wedlock, the parish was supposed to support that child. So that's another reason why people were so against it. Yeah. Yeah. Later in the Tudor period, fornication, sex between an unmarried couple, predominates in the court documents. At this time, though, it's adultery. It's as if the church was yet undecided about how much they could infiltrate people's lives. Hmm. Because adultery, yes, it's one of the thou shalt nots. Oh, right. But fornication is a bit more of a grey area. Yeah, because it isn't in the Bible. I'm sure fornication is in the Bible all the time. <laughs> it's telling us not to do it. It's just but not, it's not one of the commandments. No. Rape wouldn't have been prosecuted in church courts since it was a civil offence. Yeah. The information we get from the Leicester Archdeaconry shows that a common form of adultery was a married man and his maidservant, which begs the question, should that have been seen in the church court as adultery or in the civil court as rape? Mm. But in some of the cases, the man had turfed his wife out and was effectively cohabiting with the maidservant. Whoa. Well, you're, you're living so close together. If, if, you, if they were both attracted to each other. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. It's... No. I'm just hoping... Why if you get shoved out the door? Yeah. One man in Leicestershire was charged with, quote, living suspicious, unquote, with the daughter of one Stephen, a swineherd of that town. Quote, he keeps the said woman in his house at night against the wishes of his wife, which you'd think would go without saying, <laughs> really, wouldn't you? <laughs> and all the parishioners, unquote. And his defence was that he'd found out that his wife had been pre-contracted to someone else when they were married, so... You know, she ain't a wife of mine. But I suppose he can't then get married because she's sort of a wife of his. Yes. Difficult situation to find yourself in. Mm. In church law, a man was forbidden from marrying his mistress in the event of his wife's death. Really? Yes, which puts paid to quite a lot of those nice cosy crime stories that we like so yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because they were always killing their wives to marry their mistress. Yeah. The seriousness with which fornication was viewed depended on whether marriage was the eventual outcome. If a couple had a sexual relationship but had no intention of getting married, but if when they appeared in court they promised to do so, the charges would often be dropped. If a woman was pregnant when the wedding took place, the church wasn't particularly interested. You know, a wedding had taken place, it was all fine. Yeah. The church had got the outcome it wanted. But in Elizabeth's reign, that was not the case. Oh. They, they clamped down a hell of a lot. If a woman were brought up before the court for illicit pregnancy, or the couple for fornication, one of them, usually the woman, would claim that there had been a promise of marriage. And this put the man in a difficult position. He would pretty much have to agree if he wanted to avoid the harsher punishment. Mm -hmm. But sometimes a man would deny any talk of marriage, and since there were rarely any witnesses, there was very little a court could do if he outright denied it. And obviously she's going to say there was, because otherwise it makes her seem no better than she should be, I suppose. Yeah. If there was a child of an illicit union, at this time it wasn't referred to as baseborn or bastard, as was the case post-Reformation. Natural son or natural daughter. Well, the court was trying the parents, not the child. Oh, OK. And in fact, at this time, the court seems relatively benign. It was responsible for children born of illicit relationships, both materially and spiritually, 
and it took on the care of the unmarried mother if, I say, the situation was brought on by the deceit of men or possibly rape. Yeah. And also if the, in the case of if the father was a member of the clergy. Mm. Some people were prosecuted for the sin of promiscuity and no tudoriferous points whatsoever if you can guess which gender these prosecutions targeted. <laughs> women. <laughs> women. Only women. This was mainly an urban transgression because I guess the opprobrium of your neighbours would be too great to bear in a village. But sometimes you have to read between the lines and court transcripts to work out precisely what they mean. Common whore is self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. But promiscuous women are also described as of an evil disposition. Oh. Or of bad fame. Or reputed among her neighbours to be common. Or, more obviously, lives suspiciously with diverse persons. So, that's why the word common ended up being used. I've, in a couple of historical books, mm. I've seen a common woman being put in there. And mm. I, I assume they meant, but it was such a negative connotation. That makes so much more sense. Yeah, promiscuous or possibly oh. prostitute. Yeah, we're a common whore, aren't you? I'm not sure not. <laughs> I could have phrased that better. Thank you. <laughs> One is, <laughs> one is described as such. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to tell Jason you called me that today when he got home. <laughs> he called me a common whore. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I shan't be doing that podcast anymore. <laughs> yes, apologies. <laughs> None required. That was hilarious. <laughs> If someone were defamed, the judge could call for compagation. And that's when the accused got together a number of their neighbours who would put in a good word for them and say, you know, so-and-so's all right, leave them alone. Okay. So basically a character witness. Effectively, yeah. Yeah, okay. And if this was successful, the court could officially change the status of the accused from of bad fame to of good fame. I don't know if you had to pass through of mediocre fame. <laughs> <laughs> Average. You sometimes are bad. You're sometimes good. <laughs> of fame. <laughs> the punishment for most of these transgressions was to do penance. Sometimes it was just a telling off by the judge. Often it was telling the accused just to sort the situation out. Marry her or throw her out of your house or return to your wife. That sort of thing. Mm. And a lot of these penances don't seem so very harsh, but the punishment was that everyone around would know what you were doing and why you were doing it. And it could be walking before the cross in the parish procession or kneeling during the service holding a candle or going barefoot. For women, it might be to leave their hair untied or just to wear a simple smock or shirt. But everybody would know. That would, that's your punishment, yeah. not, not the kneeling, the humiliation and the ostracism, probably. Yeah. But this was definitely a much milder time than it had been or than, than it would become. In the 14th century and earlier in the 15th, fornicators were whipped. But around 1500, this was much less often the case. Some districts did it, but some had abandoned it. And this may be due to the rise of the use of lawyers in court, because some lawyers were not convinced that whipping people for such transgressions was legal. Oh. For the rich, however, there was usually a fine. In such a hierarchical society, it wasn't thought appropriate to risk humiliating the higher members of society. Right. They need to keep some of the respect. It did happen sometimes, though, and I wondered... I couldn't find anything about this. Whether you could pay someone to do a penance for you, like you pay <laughs> for a pilgrimage. pilgrimage for you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Probably. Urban crime and punishment. In urban areas, it was not just the ecclesiastical courts that kept the population in check, but also the religious guilds had rules that their members were expected to follow. And in town, secular courts took on cases of sexual transgression. And I'm not sure whether that was necessarily because the church courts were already swamped. That's quite possible. And again, in the town, the outcome of most cases of adultery or fornication 
was just to normalise the situation, right. either through marriage or avoidance of each other at suspicious times and places. In rural areas, the church courts were interested in lapses of Christian morality, but in towns it was largely a public order issue and was against those, quote, that wake be night and sclep be day, unquote. Mm. Sclep is to sleep. Oh, OK. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> this stemmed from the number of alehouses in town. In four inns in Leicester, the George, the Ram, the Unicorn and the Lion, a number of very bad women were kept. You think, were they very bad women oh, or very poor very women? Very poor. Yeah. Some of the women, who were presumably plying their trade in various pubs, were given the surname Tapster. Oh. So if anyone has the surname Tapster, <laughs> this is where it comes from. Oh, dear. Whether that was because they refused to give their full name or whether it was just to label them, I'm not sure, but there was an Emma Tapster at the Mitre, Edith Tapster at the Three Cups, Margaret Tapster at the George, and Marion Tapster at the Saracen's Head. And we're for sure saying they weren't actually like attending or attending the bar. They probably did that as well. Uh, I think, well, lots of pubs were a front. Okay. There was more going on in this pub than pulling pints. Okay. If we're pulling something else. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were keeping this child friendly. <laughs> In Salisbury, initially prostitutes were confined to one area. You of the can't city. say child friendly and then prostitutes <laughs> two seconds later. <laughs> but by the end of the 15th century, they had been told to leave town unless they wore a striped hood. The court records were either sporadically kept or have sporadically survived. But you can see from time to time that there was a big moral crusade and suddenly the numbers accused of bawdry shoots up. Hmm. And one of these happened in Nottingham in 1505 and seems to be due to a sudden high mortality in the city. What? So it's as if an epidemic made everyone question whether they'd been assiduous enough uh, in stamping down on sin. Yep, yep. Punishments in provincial towns were fines of various amounts, presumably based on earnings and the amount increased with repeat offenders. There was imprisonment and banishment from the town. Sometimes prostitutes were paraded around the town in their striped hoods holding a card with their offence written on it. And if you were a maid who'd been taken advantage of by your master and then cast out when you got pregnant and had nowhere to turn apart from one of these brothels, it must have been an incredibly hard punishment. Yeah. You must have been afraid your family would see. And you're probably also painfully aware of how unfair. unfair this was. No kidding. Yeah. Over the 15th century, it's been argued legitimate employment for women in towns decreased. And that explains an increase in prostitution. But I'm not quite sure why legitimate employment should have declined, except that several cities as a whole were going into decline. Places like Coventry and Leicester. But Exeter was on the rise, and yet there appears to be an increase in prosecutions for prostitution there. So if anyone's looking for a research project, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Post-Reformation, there were panics that unless the number of boards and whores were kept in check, God would be angry and would bring vengeance on the city. So wait, they assumed there was an okay number? <laughs> you can have this many. No more. Yes. No more. God doesn't mind that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we see very little of that at this time. Some towns, namely Gloucester and Leicester, cracked down because they feared they were getting a reputation for being a licentious town. Oh. Yeah, Gloucester reckoned it was, quote, abominable spoken of in all England and Wales, unquote. Oh. And it does seem to be just a borough-wide obsession rather than national. There's no evidence that Henry VII had much to say specifically on the subject. As far as Gloucester was concerned, Henry VII was mainly interested in illegal retaining and had very little to say about the sexual morality of the place. <laughs> I just want money. <laughs> Give me money. Yes, I think... I I think Gloucester's getting ideas above its station. Everybody's talking about <laughs> us. <laughs> Where? <laughs> Stews. 
They were thought to be called stews after the fish ponds where the bishops of Winchester bred fish, known as the stew ponds. Hmm. And you have the Westminster stew. One of the reasons that Westminster became a site for stews, and stews is a sort of conglomeration of uh, brothels, really. It's a red light district. Okay. And one of the reasons for having it in Westminster was that it was full of visitors attending the Royal Court, Parliament and court cases. And where there are visitors, there are pubs, and pubs were often a front for prostitution. Mm, I did not know that. I don't know why I didn't know that, but... However, the Royal Court was none too happy about having brothels in such close proximity. There were two tribunals related to the Royal Court. There was the Court of the Marshalsea, which had jurisdiction over a 12-mile radius of the court, and the King's Bench. The jury of the King's Bench was made up of householders, so they were from the middle strata of society, and they were the ones who suffered the nuisance of free-roaming animals, petty theft, and the sex trade. Mm. It is striking what a large number of cases are to do with the sex trade, largely from running bawdry houses. And there were several statements in the indictments that decent people didn't dare walk through these places and couldn't get any sleep at night because of the noise and quarrelling. Having said that Henry VII wasn't happy living cheek by jowl with pimps and whores, one of his courtiers, Matthew Baker, was indicted for running a brothel within the Palace of Westminster. Whoa. He's one of those names I hadn't come across before, and now I see everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. He was well in with Henry. He used to go hunting with him. He ran diplomatic errands. He was ambassador to France. (laughs) Gosh. (laughs) He received a gold collar from Louis XII in 1507. He received visiting diplomats too, which made me wonder if the brothel was an offshoot of that, corporate entertainment. Ah. I think we'll have just had the cameo episode on Hugh Dennis when we put this out. So we we saw that Dennis appears in a sketch of Henry VII's deathbed with everyone gathered round. And another of those attending was the brothel keeper. Matthew Baker. <laughs> so obviously he'd been forgiven enough to attend Henry's deathbed. Yeah. Or somebody thought it was a really good joke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, the last thing you see. <laughs> Much of the ecclesiastical jurisdiction of Westminster was exercised by Westminster Abbey. And a group of self-elected jurors by which I presume they mean elected each other rather than I'm a juror. elected themselves. <laughs> they met to prosecute all manner of nuisance. And brothel keeping came under the medieval statute covering weights and measures infringement by tradesmen. Really? And I'm not quite sure how they shoehorned that into the rule. <laughs> well, it's a trade, yeah, I suppose. Mm. Making a living from it? I, mm. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> I hope it's not the weights and measures. <laughs> But these jurists only met once a year on June 11th. And yet in 1508, 31 people were banished from Westminster for being, quote, ill-governed of their bodies, unquote. Mm. Which either meant that the jurors were very busy on June the 11th or they met unofficially on other days. In 1519, a morality drive headed by Wolsey included bawdry houses amongst indictment for vagabondage and gambling. And this was done in two late-night house raids on 17th July and 22nd of October. And this operation was huge and mainly concerned scolding, bawdry and lechery. Hmm. It does seem extraordinary that you can be dragged in for scolding, isn't it? I was showing somebody the scaldry bridal a little while ago. Mm. And they were like, are you kidding me? No, <laughs> no, that happened. Yeah, horrific. Most of those indicted were women. And when married couples appeared, it was the woman that authorities were after. The husband was there to answer for his wife's behaviour. 89 people were caught in these raids and 44 people left Westminster before they could be brought to court. So it's a full kick in the door yeah. down. SWAT Everybody team freeze. kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Southwark. 
and this is desperately sad. Southwark had a graveyard, especially for prostitutes. Hmm. So you're an outcast in life and you're an outcast in death. Never forgiven. No. The main trade of Southwark was innkeeping. Ah, so they had lots of them then. They had many, many, many pubs, including the Tabard, made famous Canterbury Tales. Mm. And Southwark was a wealthy place, so people liked drinking. Yes. It was the twelfth in taxable wealth in England. That's a lot of money, yeah. So, a wealthy place. Not all Southwark was held by the Bishop of Winchester. The Crown owned part, the Hospitallers owned a bit, and the Archbishop of Canterbury had some. And the bishops didn't run the stews of Southwark. <laughs> they were privately run, but they did have jurisdiction over them. And could have shut them down. I think we may in the past have implied that the bishops were profiting from the brothels. Hmm. This wasn't the case, although presumably they did take rents from them. Hmm. Which might explain why they weren't shut down. Gratifyingly... Some of the legislation brought in by the bishops was to protect the women working in the stews. Really? Hmm. That's surprising. Yeah. The stew owners couldn't beat the women. Nice. They, quote, ought to have free going and coming at their own liberties, unquote. Every three months, the stews would get a visit from the constable to check that no women were being kept against their will. The Bordery House owner was not to lend these women more than six shillings and eightpence, so they didn't end up being stuck there, having to work to ah. pay back the money that they'd oh, lent them. Okay. And the women themselves were regulated. They weren't to dress like respectable women. Oh, so they were actually made to dress like... <laughs> wow. Tarty, yeah. Huh. They, weren't to, they weren't to drag clients off the street... And they weren't to ply their trade if they suffered from the, quote, horrible disease, unquote. Mm. There was a, it interest you, there was a prohibition on spinning. Spinning mm -hmm. being something that respectable women did. Oh, really? Hmm. Ah, at least I'm a respectable woman then. <laughs> well, that's better than what I just called you, I suppose. <laughs> Prostitutes were not to work on holy days, which must have been quite a restriction given how many of them there were. Lots, yeah. In 1506, the stews were closed, but the Great Chronicle says, quote, For what hap and consideration, the certainty I know not, unquote, which isn't very helpful. No. A roll surviving from the church court of Southwark shows that most cases were brought by ordinary people fed up with the behaviour of their neighbours rather than by visitations, as was later the case. If defendants didn't appear in court, they were first suspended from the church and then, if they still didn't turn up, they were excommunicated, which is a wow, big leap. yeah. But it's not surprising that many of these defendants absconded the trial often included compagation, and they would have had to get eight or nine respectable citizens to put in a good word for them. If they were running a brothel, there'd be only one way they might come in contact with these respectable citizens. Oh, dear. And those respectable citizens are hardly going to want to advertise the fact... That they had been there. Hmm. Right. But one board was dismissed from court when a group of her neighbours undertook to make sure she behaved herself in future. I'm not sure how they managed that, but... Or how they thought they were going to be able to do that. <laughs> One Southwark man, Thomas Mannery, was accused of adultery and was told to get rid of his mistress and take his wife back into his house, which he did, reluctantly. A later case told him he had to give his wife sufficient fiddles, showing that it's all so very well telling people to take their wives back. He was starving her? But it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't take into account the resentment that could, yeah. engen could engender. Yeah, he wasn't providing enough food for her. Goodness. London church courts. In the city of London itself, licensed brothels were never tolerated. Unlicensed brothels, however, were on every other street. <laughs> Quite possibly. How would we know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in Southwark, you got your licensed brothels, didn't you? It was not just the poor who were indicted for fornication and adultery. Well-connected people, 
including an alderman, Henry VII's court physician, and Grace, Edward IV's illegitimate daughter, found themselves accused. And as we've said, Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville, once the late king was be had been accused of being pre-contracted to Eleanor Butler, quote, the said King Edward during his life and the said Elizabeth lived together sinfully and dampenably in adultery, provoking the ire and indignation of our Lord God, unquote. Oh, dear. Just telling him. When was that said? That must have been in Richard III's time. Once. Richard's time, because I was going to say, saying that during Henry VII's yeah. when his daughter is the queen. No. Ooh. No. That's asking for trouble. <laughs> yeah, there was only a small window of history where yes. you could get away with saying that, I think. In... 1495, four out of five of the cases brought to the London church courts were related to sex in some way. And you would think, or I would think, that defamation would be more a concern to rural areas than to urban ones, since in a village or small town you're stuck with your neighbours mm -hmm. forever. But Londoners were just as concerned to keep their good name. And defamation only came to court if it was an accusation of a crime. Just name-calling wasn't illegal. Mm. During the reigns of Richard III and Henry VIII, there was quite a link between the crown and civil morality, but not in Henry VII's reign. Henry didn't seem to want to get involved in civil prosecutions of, of sexual transgressions. And I was wondering whether that's because he didn't have a Wolsey breathing down his neck. Oh. He did have a Bishop Fox, though. <laughs> yes, he did. But Bishop Fox may have had the Winchester geese. There was a purge of whores and harlots from London in 1510, so that, that just goes to show that you're right about the unlicensed brothels. <laughs> you might not have had the licensed ones, but you wouldn't have to purge them if they weren't there. Yes. And that was just a year after Henry VII died. But this was a far wider purge of gamblers, vagabonds, etc. And it stemmed from the prosecution of crooked jurors and perjurers. Really? And that ultimately stemmed from people who had worked for Dudley and Empson. So by oh. the sound of it, it just snowballed. Yeah. They started prosecuting people for various sins to do with Dudley and Empson, and everything got sort of sucked into this vortex. It was thought that the bad sexual behaviour of the clergy, which goes under the wonderful name of clerical incontinence, was one of the main reasons for anti-clericism that led to the Reformation. But now it's thought that the numbers of pre-Reformation naughty clergy has been exaggerated. But maybe it's not how many cases there were, but how many cases there were perceived to be. And definitely in a rural area, a misdemeanour by a priest would lead to condemnation of the priest himself, not as a clergy as a whole. Yeah. Some of the clergy were quite unrepentant. Really? A vicar in Leminster, when accused of fathering children with two women, said, quote, Carnal pleasure was natural, and is not a thing that God takes vengeance for. For a little confession, we'll easily remove it, unquote. Wow! <laughs> Mind you, I suppose, I mean, he's been caught effectively with his trousers down. What is he going to say? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> Priests who had to do penance for their incontinence were often laughed at by their parishioners. And Thomas More said that people loved a good scandal about the clergy. And we still do. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, watch what, then one of those American TV evangelists crash. Everybody loves it, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are certain things that the clergy do which people do not. don't love a good scandal about. But uh, yeah. clerics didn't take a vow of celibacy like monks and nuns. It was just expected that they would be chaste. Oh, Mm. I thought it was a full-on vow. Well, apparently not. Huh. But if a priest had a relationship with a woman they had baptised, or whose confession they'd heard, they were guilty of spiritual incest. Oh, that's a stretch. Mm. Isn't it? Especially, I mean, if you're a priest, virtually everybody you know you've yeah. baptised or... It's hard to tell how much the visitations focused on the sexual misdemeanours of the clergy, since if church wardens were reluctant to inform the authorities about their neighbours, they were even more reluctant to inform on their priests. No kidding, you just lost your job. Mm. 
And they might go so far as to say that the vicar, quote, has a young woman in his house who is pregnant, unquote. But they wouldn't go so far as to say it was the vicar that made her so. <laughs> and you said that Bishop Fox preferred to deal leniently with people. Mm-hmm. But that could sometimes backfire because there's a fine line between leniency and a cover-up. Yes, true. Three vicars in neighbouring parishes were all discovered to have slept with one or other or both of two sisters. Oh. And Fox's leniency of them was criticised as the church looking after its own. Yes. Some clergy might find themselves cleared of sexual misdemeanour only to find themselves in worse trouble. Edmund Winchester, a priest in Suffolk, was accused of having relations with one of his parishioners. The lady in question strenuously denied it and said it came from the malice of her neighbours, which the judge seemed inclined to believe. But then he decided to test the priest on his knowledge of the sacraments and was so shocked at his ignorance that he strongly suggested that Winchester take up another career. Wow. Yeah. And I imagine a lot of rural priests were like that. Yeah. No education for it. Mm. In Leicestershire, the tally of the number of clergy in the county and the number of cases of immorality coming before the court shows that 5% of the clergy were being charged with immorality at any one time. And the book I read said only 5%. But it seems quite a lot to me. So 14 vicars out of 360 cases. Yeah. Out of the women concerned, three were the servants of the priest... Oh, dear. And six were married women. And it's not always known the outcome of these cases, but most of the names that appeared in those indictments do not appear in the parish records in the following years, indicating Uh that they'd moved out of the area. The clergy, being a special case, even when they're acquitted from the crime, the judge might suggest that they move to a different parish. Once you've lost the respect of your parishioners, it's going to be hard to get it back. You're not going to be any use. In London in 1495... 15% of those accused of adultery were clergy. And 30% of the women charged with being common whores in 1495 were accused of sleeping with priests. Really? Mm. That's a lot. It is, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Despite what appears to be a large percentage, there does not seem to be much rigour in prosecuting those priests. If they did turn up in court, and half that number didn't, sometimes the judge would just drop the case... And this number increased over the years to the Reformation. So if there were anti-clerical feeling, maybe it wasn't the number of clerics indicted more than the lax way that they were prosecuted. Hmm. Cardinal Morton complained that the prevalence of naughty clergy was proving a public relations disaster. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Although he was more upset about priests who spent all day at the pub and wore their hair long and their shirts open. Nothing changes, does it? (laughs) (laughs) The perceived immorality of priests fell into the laps of Protestants. A supplication of the poor commons, which was sent to Henry VIII, made a joke of the tithes priests received, saying, If your highness would suffer them, priests' conscience would serve them to lie with our wives every tenth night, other else to have every tenth wife in the parish at their pleasure. Unquote. So they're getting their tithes everywhere. One way or the other. (laughs) Yeah. By 1529, a petition was suggesting a trial run of transferring ecclesiastical jurisdiction to the crown, presumably not trusting church courts to punish priests sufficiently, which suggests that the average Londoner had a very low opinion of the church's ability to police its own. And that is where we'll leave this subject and come back to it when we get to the Reformation and see how everything has changed when the church then felt that they could interfere in people's lives a lot more and punishments for transgressions became harsher. I think this period, people would have looked back as halcyon days by your average adulterer. Yeah. Well, there's another sad or unhappy episode (laughs) for a holiday. (laughs) Welcome to Tudor River Ends. (laughs) Well, we just said said this was a nice time to to commit adultery. (laughs) If you're going to commit adultery, do it now. Don't do it before. Don't do it after. Yeah. <laughs> do it only in Hen- in Henry the Seventh's reign. <laughs> oh, Especially if you're a priest. <laughs> and if you are a priest, get out of the pub and cut your hair. 
and you'll be fine. Nobody knows <laughs> anything else. Oh, man. <laughs> so there was a lot in there that I was really surprised about. Me too. Mm. It's just completely counterintuitive, some of it. Yeah. Mm. Oh, those poor girls, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the same threat. It'll be that way for... of history. Yeah. As now. Yeah. But happy, happy Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Day. Whether you're <laughs> spending it with your loved one or spending it curled up in front of the telly with half a bottle of creme de menthe. <laughs> 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 Enjoy. Goodbye. Goodbye.